0: Jerusalem Talks ND, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the University of Notre Dame with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through the initiatives and presence of the university in Jerusalem and the region at large. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu. Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel Svaka, and I'm the executive director of the University of Notre Dame Attentor, the campus that houses both the Ecumenical Institute for Theological Studies and one of the Global Gateways of the University of Notre Dame. On behalf of the team, I would like to welcome you all to the third episode of Jerusalem Talks in D, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the Gateway with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through our various initiatives. Tonight's discussion continues a series of conversations that were hosted by our faculty member of Rumburg turning the flashlight on the different identities of Jerusalem, aiming to understand how people within these identities reflect on the common realities and challenges. Some of these identities might seem homogeneous from the outside, but a higher resolution reveals not just nuances, but also strong diversion and controversies, as well as commonalities with other seemingly different identities. There is no reason for this to be different for the Jewish-Israeli identity, the identity that tonight's flashlight will turn to as everyone else in the room I'm also curious to know where tonight's discussion will take us exactly that obviously depends on of room mostly one thing is clear that our speakers uncle and niece of Rumborg and Shirab and Sason Furstenberg do not only care to bridge the differences within the Israeli Jewish identity but are also aware that a much larger abyss lies between the Israelis and the Palestinians, an abyss that only the humanization of the other or the rehumanization of the other will start to fill. I would like to recite a quote that um, is from Rabbi Cook, that Shira herself used in one of her speeches that I found on the web, that I be- believe brings the efforts of re-humanization that Shira is leading. Um, puts it on to the point. Rabbi Cook is considered to be one of the first religious Zionist thinkers. He writes The prerequisite for loving Israel is loving all humans, and it embeds and if it embeds hatred to any human being, it means that it has yet to purify its soul. Bensason Furstenberg is the associate director at New Israel Fund and Director of the Development and International Relations Department. She previously served as the director of the Jewish Pluralism Watch, IREP, Israel Religious Expression Platform at the Jewish Federation of North America, and worked at the Knesset's Research and Information Center. Avrum, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. Since Daniel already made the embarrassing full disclosure or due diligence that the relationship between Shira and myself might be described by some as... um, quasi nepotism, okay Um, I love her more years than she loves me because I loved her because she was before she was born she's really my beloved niece but more than that a partner for so many um, walks of life for so many years and I'm very very happy that finally we have a chance to talk in public Um, the other times are at the gym of the swimming pool okay which is a different kind of a discourse Shira, you are a Jerusalemite, you were born in Jerusalem, you live in Jerusalem, you raise your kids in Jerusalem. What is your, if you're stopped at the roadblock and you're asked to give an ID, what's written on your Jerusalemite ID?
2: Wow. I've never even considered the possibility of being stopped at a roadblock, and I'm surrounded by roadblocks. Um, that's a shocking question to me, just the setting. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I would, I would say Yerushalmit, a Jerusalemite would be one of the top, uh, descriptions that I would choose. Um, I actually define myself as an Orthodox woman. Uh, I don't know if everybody today in orthodoxy would um, sign, give a kosher certificate to my level of orthodoxy, but I feel that I am an observant Jew, Um, a woman, an Israeli, a mother, a partner.
1: A Jerusalemite orthodox woman. I'll take that. Let's keep it aside for a second. We shall revisit it. It's when when you give five different definitions, it means that one of them is not enough, right? Your,
2: your sister says, my yeah. mother, that if you buy someone a, a birthday present and it's comprised of many different little presents, it's because you don't feel that one of them was enough, and that you better choose one that is really good. This why she, she bought says, me
1: twenty last <laughs> in <the> last birthday. <laughs> and I and she
2: says she takes it actually not very characteristic of her. She says she takes this from from the uh, biblical interpreter Rashi, that when he brings more than one um, explanation to a verse, it's because he doesn't think one of them was good enough. So
1: when you have a compiled identity, what is not sufficient in each and every one of them? Jerusalemite, woman, and orthodox?
2: It means it, it... it's sort of banal to say but it it's supposed to represent complexity, right? It's supposed to represent the fact that we it's very hard to narrow us down to one definition for our identity unless we are willing to say the broadest definition for our identity. I suspect you may answer if you were answer if you were asked that question, you may answer I am a human. I'm guessing, um, which didn't occur to me. As uh, I mean, you, you either you either go really broad or really narrow with a lot of little ones.
1: I'll tell you why I emphasize why I, why I dig so much. We had here before on the same chair two different individuals: Father David Neuhaus and Sarah Nuseiba. One is a theologian; the other one is a philosopher. And they both belong to a kind of a minority in Jerusalem, the Christian minority, which is a minority within the non-Jewish minority. And Serino Seba, the Palestinian minority amongst the Jewish majority of the city. And here you come, and you are a kind of a minority within the majority. So let's start with what does that mean for you as a Jew to be a majority? It's nice.
2: Uh, it's nice. It's nice to be privileged. Um, I won't deny it. It's when you ask me what if you were stopped at a roadblock. I never consider being stopped anywhere in my homeland, and it's nice to feel like you can go everywhere and own everything. It's probably even nicer when you're a man, uh, because I, I would, st- I still feel that there are things, places I can't naturally walk into, uh, being a woman. But but it's nice to have privilege and it's nice to be part of the majority in that way. Um, and it's also it's also, again, with the complexities, it's also really demanding because everything that is being done here is being done in my name. On your behalf. Yes, on my behalf, assuming that I, prefer it this way, assuming that it represents my my religious belief and and my national belief. And just yesterday, a friend shared, you will not believe this, and and, and I'm really sorry, it's like uncomfortable to hear. A friend shared a news piece about a man who was being buried in the Jewish cemetery in the city of Nahariya up north in Israel, and since that man was uncircumcised, they circumcised the body. (laughs) And, and then I learned that the problem with this case wasn't that they circumcised his body, is that they didn't ask the family, but that this is what Judaism, I, I can't, I, I don't believe in saying this is what Judaism says, but halakhically, based on, on Orthodox Jewish law, you do not bury a person who is uncircumcised in a Jewish cemetery, and therefore even babies who are born and pass away uh, before they're eight days old, they circumcise deceased babies, and they circumcised this man, and the big brouhaha came out because um, they didn't ask the family. So it was just a minor detail. So I was writing back to my friends when we were discussing this um, and saying, who had the stupid idea of founding a state for Jews? It's like, we can get to ridiculous measures if we run this state based on orthodox traditional Jewish law. We get crazy acts. That's how I feel about being Jewish. It, it makes my life very easy, and it sometimes makes my life very embarrassing.
1: It's easy because you say it's a comfort zone, and nobody doubts my belonging, and nobody asks me for idea, not necessarily the police idea, but the spiritual idea. But on the other hand, things that are done by the Jewish collective or the Jewish official are not necessarily um, matching your value system. So within the three components you put on the table, the orthodox element by itself is full of contradictions. Yes. Can I assume that the, there is another contradiction, that orthodoxy stands whatever it is, but it's supposed to be quite conservative, be it religiously, be it traditionally, be it culturally. Yes, small
2: c, conservative.
1: Mm, small, yeah. <laughs> not conservative
2: uh, like the conservative movement. No,
1: but conservative like very yeah. um, traditional yeah. and yes. Altsy, alt yeah. conservative. Um, and then being a woman. Yes. Because the role of the woman in the orthodox paradigm is not necessarily what you are if you just isolate the woman element of your identity. So who are you as a woman and how does it collide with your orthodoxy?
2: I am a woman who is pushing the boundaries of her own circumstances and community as far as I can take them. And I do that together with men and women who are my partners in this journey. And it's been my life's journey, and you know it. Um, It's been my life's journey to, to fight to stay within Some people say this is too much for me. Some people who I adore... What is
1: it? I mean, imagine that neither our audience here or the people who listen to us uh, for this uh, podcast do not really know your life journey. So give some examples. Illustrate it.
2: I mean, okay, I can't assume knowledge, so I will say um, women and girls in an Orthodox Jewish setting are second best to... um, uh, in everything that has to do with worship and everything that has to do with public appearance and everything that has to do with religious leadership or any kind of leadership. But let's talk about the re- congregational sphere or um, or religious worship sphere. Um, we sit behind a curtain or sometimes in the second floor partition. in the synagogue yes um in a good synagogue it's a, it's a partition that is you know very light um and we can see through it but in other places as i said it's high up in in the second or third floor and we do not take we we watch over um prayer and practice
1: but you're not equal players
2: we are um viewers of an a a jewish Many Jewish ceremonies that take place that we can look at them but or listen and sometimes even respond and sing, but high up in the second or third floor of the building.
1: enters Shirah and she walks down from the balcony to the main hall and instead of sitting separately from the family, sits with her family. Uh, So-so. So-so, maybe not. No, I wish. We can talk about that. And now she's pushing the envelope, the the orthodox envelope. Show me a place or show us a place in which you succeeded in the pushing and other places in which the envelope pushed back harder than you, where you failed.
2: First of all, I am not declaring failure because I'm still in this journey. Hmm. Um, So... So the the people I am with define the journey to egalitarianism as a journey and not as some certain goal with an end point. Like, if only we had mixed seating, then we'd be fine. Or if only we had a woman reading from the Torah scroll, we'll be fine. Um, It's it's an ongoing life journey and I am not declaring failure because, thank God, my life is not over yet and I'm not out of energy um, to fight for this yet. But um, I think a good test case to see if we succeeded, is um take our rites of passage, take the the bat mitzvah, the female equivalent. The confirmation. The, the female equivalent of, of the bar mitzvah. Um, look at the look at the bat mitzvah ceremony that my grandmother, your mother had. I don't think she had one, not just because she was an orphan and a survivor and because of her life story, but because nobody did. Um, I don't even know if they celebrated birthdays. maybe a bar mitzvah to a boy. Um, we do know because we have that beautiful photograph. but but um, she probably nobody marked her coming of age as a jew, as a as an adult jew. Um, adult then, female Jew. adult female Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother, your sister, I think you celebrated at home, um had some nice food. I don't think she spoke or gave a a lecture with Jewish content. I don't think she did anything that marked um, her being able to participate or to lead service or any kind of Jewish practice. Um, Tell me if you remember otherwise. And I think my beloved grandfather, your father, said that it's it's not a Jewish tradition to celebrate a confirmation for a girl.
1: And now your daughter.
2: And now me. Mm. Don't skip me.
1: I never. Um, how y- can I? <laughs>
2: and I, I'd like to pass through me, your daughter, and then my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the privilege of celebrating a very meaningful uh, rite of coming of age. But um, I think my parents and my community at that time, it was 1987, um, you bought me a Swatch watch. Um you gave it to me at the beginning of the event. Um I think I think my 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 family was willing to push that envelope um to a certain extent, a very um a very uh, brave one on my father's um you know side. Um and the congregation was willing to stomach it and it was in the synagogue it was in the women's gallery in the in the balcony on the top floor and it was midweek not on a saturday not in a holy time and i gave a very long lesson on a chapter i don't know the name of the book in english um Michelet. proverbs no that's dillin that's psalms proverbs you're right um uh, proverbs proverbs 31 um the the um, the chapter on the Woman of Valor. And I studied with my father for months. The same level of dedication that he demanded from my brothers, he demanded from me. And I had, you know, a huge stack of books. And you all had an A3 source sheet.
1: I will never forget it.
2: It was extremely demanding for a little girl. That's right. I was almost 12 years old. It was extremely demanding. And And teaching men. And I taught men and women, and both my grandparents, men, gave um, an opening and and a contextualization to the things I was going to teach. I was invited to the Holy of Holies of Jewish education, but not to the Holy of Holies of Jewish... um,
1: Ritual. Ritual. And now...
2: And then Roni, my my Mm. cousin, your daughter, who is a few years younger than I am. Um, I was born in 1975. When was when was Loni bor- born
1: We don't count, we just remember.
2: Okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Lonnie is a little younger than I am and grew up in a setting a little more progressive than mine, um, and had different parents, r- related to my parents, but different parents, and negotiated with our grandfather the ability to read, to take a ritualistic move and to read um from the scriptures. Um, and we managed to find a time and a place that worked for him, uh, representing tradition and worked for her representing change. Um, and she had a different, and your daughter ceremony than I am. And my daughter, Oshri, who is now almost 15, did the works, the works, everything, everything that a Jewish boy did, Oshri did.
1: So that's an evolution. That's the evolution. She read the entire portion. That's your journey.
2: That is my journey. That's a really but let great me way to
1: summarize it in my own words. Yeah, you have a contradiction within your Jewish orthodoxy. I mean, you have a co- inner collision. Yeah, you have a collision within your religious identity between the envelope which pushes back, and you push it out. Okay, and now let's go to be a Jerusalemite.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, it's not an easy city.
2: But I can't imagine myself living anywhere else. It's it's unbelievable to me that people live in Israel and live in Rishon LeZion or in... uh,
1: Yeah, but how many of your schoolmates from Jerusalem, not the other schools, are still Jerusalemites?
2: That's a good question. I don't know if they can afford an apartment. Yeah, but
1: that's not the reason. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Many people of your age group and your generation simply exiled from the city.
2: No, my friends live in the territories. Okay. I went to school in the territories. Half of my class was from Gush Etzion, from the Etzion block, very close to here. And most of them have beautiful houses, beautiful gardens, um, and many more children than I do, and, and they live in the territories.
1: Yeah, but nonetheless, Jerusalem emptied itself from a component that once was very characteristic of it the Jewish Jerusalem, and this is the liberal component. Yes. I mean Jerusalem of my childhood the Jerusalem of a generation or two ago was much more universalist open-minded uh, heterogeneous and Jerusalem of nowadays what you describe here as your way of life and the people you love people you love you live with is experimental Judaism and experimental Jerusalem but not mainstream Jewish Jerusalem
2: Yes you're right I live in a bubble I live in a bubble, in a geographic bubble, in a sociological bubble, in a religious bubble, um, in an educational bubble. I live in the south of Jerusalem, which is the most progressive place um, with with the most experimental options in Judaism. Maybe only competing with Manhattan or or the Upper Upper West Side or Riverdale. Yes.
1: Can you explain this? volatile, experimental Jerusalem because if I come from the outside and I give somebody a tour of this Jerusalem, I say, these are these extremists and these extremists and these extremists. Everybody's an extremist of a kind. And all of a sudden, this place, which is saturated with uh, extremism, you have so many fascinating uh, other spiritual experiments, like people looking for life at the mouth of a volcano? Um, I
2: don't, I I think, I don't know if our audience is, are you all American, are they all American?
1: Some of them, all of them are American, (laughs) some of them are even human.
2: (laughs) I respect that. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, So I think a lot of what is, um, we're able to see and enjoy the fruits of these Jewish experiments that we're able to enjoy in the uh, bubble of South Jerusalem in the past few decades, um, are a result of an import from the United from the Judaism in the United States. The pluralistic Judaism. The pluralistic Judaism in, in the Explain. United States. It, I think progressive Judaism was was not born here. We are ze- zealots. Zealots. Um, as you explained, Jerusalem is is uh, saturated with um, extremists of all kinds. And if if we wanted to experiment with progressive, with, with the notion that is so not Israeli, that there is more than one way to be Jewish, is a notion that came from the United States, brought to us by the reform movement, by the conservative movement, by the reconstructionist movement, by leading rabbinic thinkers and figures Men and women um, in the United States, and I cannot take ownership of of the kernel of the idea that Judaism can be practiced and understood in more than in 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 a non-binary way. And all of these experiments happen to take place in a beautiful area of 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 a triangle of neighborhoods in Southern Jerusalem.
1: So let's address it from two different angles or two different points of view the first one is you say i'm an orthodox the immediate translation of orthodoxy is the right observation which is there is one way of thinking and it is this one and then you say i'm an orthodox straight like a ruler who accepts a notion of the other ways of looking at it so what kind of orthodoxy is that one? Is it possible to have flexible orthodoxy? I think is it is. Is it an oxymoron? <laughs> I mean, how does it work?
2: I think it Methodologically is. Methodologically or I, daily? I, I, um, you know... Over the years, people have spoken about modern orthodoxy or um, national ortho uh, national religious and different. Our community or the community we come from um, had different names, and I feel very good about um, progressive orthodoxy or open orthodoxy, and um, it means that I have to grapple every day. When I vote in the, in the ballot and when I talk to my children and who I invite to my house for a Shabbat meal, um, I have to grapple every day with notions of um, life and Torah. L- life and, and it's, it's not a, uh, can I use the word Torah? Um, yes. The Holy Scripture. Yes, um, but, but in a bigger way in in like torah in a way that that runs our world and and create and and defines our our values and our thinking what kind of torah M- molding actually yes your, like your like a, a set of moral ideas and that all derive from our religious connection or belief um what kind of torah do i want my torah to be and how can i make it a living torah um and and I feel sort of a little bit embarrassed and ridiculous to use these big words, because usually we don't just think, do I invite my friend Mickey and his partner Moti for a Shabbat meal, knowing that they will drive to my house on, on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, knowing that they are two men married to each other? Do I invite them to my Shabbat table? And what do I want my kids to see? Do I, then when I think about it, before I call Mickey and say, would you like to come for, for a meal? Do I run through, you know, all of this the scriptures? Do I open a book? Do I ask a rabbi? No, it's a natural it religious religion has to be natural to you. And if it hurts, then I I I don't believe in a religion that hurts me.
1: Okay, so you that is
2: painful to live with.
1: You have okay, so you have let's you have augmented orthodoxy. Okay, if I can call it like that. And then you have the way of life in which you take all the big words, as you call them, and you actually filter them into your own being and trickle it to your children and through them to your peers and community and what you call your congregation. You have a dream, you have a vision, you want the entire world to be like that? No. Or you just live like, uh, you live within your own
2: shell and that's it? I'm, well, I have a dream for Israel. Please. Um, remember when I said that the idea of more than one way to be Jewish is not an Israeli idea? Mm -hmm. I wish for the Israeli public and for the Israeli leadership to come to terms with this understanding that there is more than one way to be Jewish and that Judaism is a um, non-binary teaching and and morality and Torah for life. And um, I don't need... I don't have a burning, yearning, you know, expectation for everyone to practice Judaism the same way that I do, um, but I don't want people to give up on it. And I get the hives. I really, I get a rash when people talk about um, religious religization of the education system. And people say, "We don't want any Judaism, even in the non." Uh, religious schools in israel we don't want any judaism in the public sphere we don't want any judaism on the media because judaism doesn't speak to me anymore as an israeli that hurts me i want people to care about it to own it their way it doesn't have to be my way i just don't want people to give up on it and because it's so politicized people are disgusted and they'd rather not
1: why are you so afraid of pain religion which pains you is not good yeah. Secularism, which pains you, is not good. What's the problem? Why do you
2: say I don't know anything about secularism? You just
1: say you. people who feel we abandoned this Judaism pains me. What's pains, pro-
2: oh, pains me. What, what's pains the problem them.
1: with pain? It's helpful. I mean, when you have in your body some pain, you, you
2: like pain. You run. Listen, pain I, is terrible. I run. I'm
1: addicted, but it's something else. <laughs> but the body naturally has pain in order to indicate that there is a sickness that there is a malady, that there is a need to to cure and recover yeah you said that but like if you sister. run away and you take advil for everything or you have religious advilism uh, I, that doesn't make any program any progress
2: I listen you're right I, also the, the places i've gotten to happen through pain right mm-hmm. i had to i had to fight to own. I saw the inside of a Torah scroll when I was 30 years old. Any Jewish boy sees it, the inside, just to stand next to it and look inside, what it looks like not from the outside um, or from the second floor. So so yes, there was pain and I I acted on it. Um, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. That's, we have to continue that conversation. But um, it's just, I don't know what to tell you so, I'm it, a, so it there it's i'm okay. afraid of pain but sometimes it brings me beautiful gifts yes
1: okay we'll come back to the pain differently i promise you i'll pain you a little bit more a <laughs> bit later um when when you say my dream is one day for israelis i mean the collective jewish actually yes. but mainly jewish because that's a majority society 80 percent of israelis yeah. are jewish uh, um, to contain Alternatives and, uh, and respect them res- and contradictions, etc. Yes. Who are your adversaries? Because you ask many individuals, say, "Yes, I tolerate you, I whatever." But who are your no, adversaries? No, no,
2: no, I don't want them to tolerate me. I want them to opt in.
1: Okay. I so, who are the adversaries of this philosophy of this approach in Jerusalem or in Israel? Oh, the there
2: is one single camp, one single camp, and it is not the ultra orthodox camp. It is the mustard. It is um, what we call in Hebrew charedal, the nationalistic um, ultra religious.
1: Ultra national, ultra religious.
2: Yes. Um, today they own. They they own. The national religious camp in the Knesset and in the in the religious educational system, they are the rabbis um they are the teachers, they are the members of knesset um, they stole our name um, and
1: they and, will actually they are and they
2: are, are, in my opinion the most dangerous um sector in Israeli society because they are ultra religious and ultra nationalistic the dual
1: dual fundamentalism yes. Okay. And
2: and it comes, it's like a package deal. It's all in there, uh, the the um, concepts on their their the way they think on gender equality and on um, Jewish Arab partnership within the state of Israel and our, our and, and the way they look at the occupation and the way they think of their this country and the way, the way they think of on on, on uh, global warming, everything in there. I, I can't think of anything that we see eye to eye on.
1: Though, you go to the same synagogues, we you do pray not. the same prayer. We do. Yeah, Similar, okay. close, uh, yes. Um, many of them are our members members of the same families. Yeah. Okay, very close ones. Extended somehow. family, yes. Yeah, okay. Your so, cousins, not my cousins. <laughs> my family, your family. <laughs> okay, and, and actually here, what you describe, they are the main adversaries. Is it a split that is possible to bridge over or is it actually a civil... It's a war. It's a war. It's a it's cold a war. war.
2: It's a war. I cannot... I mean, I really wanted to make it work with anyone, but I cannot see how to make it work with them. And they do not even look at my general direction. And they totally disqualify and cross out... Every kind of understanding and every kind of Jewish practice that I and my partner teach our children and uh, and 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 see as a you know what my my partner, my uh childhood sweetheart who is now my husband my
1: significant other my significant <laughs> other yeah
2: yeah um yeah he is a professor of Talmud. He is the, currently the head of the Talmud. Talmud
1: is the corpus of Jewish studies of hundreds of years since the, the end of the Bible. Yeah, till, the post-biblical, yeah.
2: yes. Um, he's a serious dude. Um, he loves his work. He, he actually is very interested in the way that early Christianity and, and Second Temple Judaism uh, correspond and influence each other. He's so
1: serious that every now and then he even smiles.
2: That's true, okay, go on and, and like my mother says he's serious, like pneumonia, <laughs> so yes, um, she's a doctor, so she yeah, uh, so um I think they they even disqualify the way he teaches the Holy scripture, so I don't see ourselves connecting religiously, and I don't see ourselves connecting nationally, um. I I don't see a a meeting point.
1: Okay, it's a war or it's a split of the classical Jewish splits, and we had many of them throughout our history. I admire you as a warrior as much as you don't like pain and this and this and this and that because it's a a combat. And now I would like to offer you a comforting, optimist reading of the same reality And I'll say as follows, these dual fundamentalists get so strong because of you, because they try to defend themselves, because you succeeded so... Because they're losing? They're losing.
2: You think they're losing?
1: I think they lost. And I offer you a reading, okay?
2: They win all the votes.
1: Votes are like fragrance. Nice to smell, not very healthy to drink. Very fluid, very, very rapid, the kind of dune, stabili- stability as a dune. You look at the rise of these fundamentalists, by the way, not only in Judaism, same in Christianity, especially in North America and in Islam, etc. And you see that wherever there is a rise of these forces, it because the social structures were so dramatically changed in the last century or the last couple of decades, so they're Women's building sta-
2: the walls higher.
1: They were well defeated because they have gays and lesbians at home, because they have feminists at home, because there is a demand for equality at home, because there are secularization at home. And they try to close the window after the light actually illuminated the room.
2: That's beautiful. I'll take that. But um I don't think we're winning on the national nationalistic level. I think most Israelis are with them, and I think kids who grow up in this ultra nationalistic, ultra religious communities and settlements um, might choose to take their yarmulke off and become non religion, non religious, and and maybe gay or you know break away from the family in many 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 ways and be non observant. It's extremely brave but they will not break away from the um, nationalistic perception of relationships between Jews and Palestinians and Jews and non-Jews in this country.
1: Again, I will say, I use your words, it's a journey. It's a journey. Your grandmother, which happened to be my beloved mother, did not believe that there are Jewish gays Forget how, about re- observant you know? observant and religious one. How, how do you know? I spoke with her about it. Really? Yeah, it was f- a funny conversation. I was one day in San Francisco, very early on, early 80s, and I told her, what did he do today? I went to meet my friend Brian. What did he, What does he do? He's the president of the community. What is on the community agenda, she asked. I said they doubled the budget for HIV uh, beds at the Fr- San Francisco uh, uh, um Hospitals, she said, What is HIV, AIDS at the time? I said, This is the, the malady, the, the, the sickness of the of homosexuals. He said, What is homosexuals? She said, What are homosexuals? Yeah. I said, People of the same sex, yada, yada. He said, They're not Jews like this. So, why the Jewish community contributes money to that? Okay, and uh, (laughs) the agenda changed, the environment changed, and a lot of things are so different from generation to generation. So first, it begins with tolerance at home, tolerance which is close to you, tolerance which imposes itself on you. And once you develop sensitivities to the people dear to you, the next thing will be sensitivities for people who are not with you.
2: I believe in that, and I'll tell you something. That's your own words. No, That's a yeah. I, so, so I believe in what I said, and you, you are a great sounding board to this, and it, it gives me hope. Um, we founded a synagogue. In it was, I think, two thousand six. Uh, we broke away from our regular traditional Orthodox synagogue and founded a synagogue that is a partnership oh. one, where men and women lead the prayers. We sit separately. Um, if I have the energy, I will bring a vote to the congregation to create, same way as your synagogue has, three areas for men, women, and people who want to sit together. Um, but I need to muster the energy to do that and fight with my friends. Um, and we don't like pain. I don't. But I may I may do that. Um, but we founded that synagogue, and it was a breakaway from our old synagogue and, and very, very different to the way we grew up. And we didn't have a Torah scroll. And you need, you can't read, read on Saturday when you read from the Torah. You can't read from a printed version of the Bible. You need the scroll. Yeah. And uh, it's very expensive. And uh, we didn't have one, <laughs> you know. Many synagogues, you walk in, they open their... Um, arch. The arch. The, the, the arch. The arch. The arch. The arch. The ark, And you see like 15... Torah scrolls in there and just to imagine the cost of that thing and the dead animals needed to write it and whatever. But, um, but but we didn't have one. And we used to borrow one for for three years. And you can't just pick up a Torah scroll and, and take it home. Two people have to take it. You have to put it in a respectable place. It's a process. It's, it's like it's a whole big deal when you don't have one and you need to bring one every Friday and give it back every Saturday night. And, and we were borrowing one from the Hartman Institute for three years. Um, one day, I went to march with my friends in the Jerusalem, one of the first Jerusalem gay pride parades. And we were walking up um, King David Street. And um, the woman who founded the, the women's, the lesbian Orthodox organization in Israel, it's called Batkol, her name is Abigail Sperber, and she's the, an amazing person and the daughter of a very prominent... Uh, Professor rabbi. Professor rabbi Religious, from, intellectual, and yes, theologian. Yes, yeah. uh, Daniel Sperber. Daniel Sperber, and, um, and she's the founder of a gay Orthodox women's organization, and I am marching with Abigail and her friends uh, because it's important to me and I support their work. And um, And Abigail's brother... Uh, David, David, is marching too because he's there to support his sister and her friends. And we're walking up the King David Street and uh, he says to me, Mazel Tov, congratulations. I heard you started a new shul, a new synagogue. And I said, yes, thank you. And he went to yeshiva with my husband. And, And he says, do you have a Torah scroll? I said, no, we borrow one every week. It's quite a pain in the neck. And he says... Well, my father, the prominent Daniel, Rabbi Daniel Sperber, is now involved in bringing dozens of old Torah scrolls from congregations in Europe that perished. And they're bringing the Torah scrolls, saving them and bringing them to Israel, renovating them or fixing New, them yeah. and, and giving them to congregations. And they're all stashed at Echal Shlomo near your childhood home. Um, and they're going to hand them out. Why don't you reach out to him and ask for a Torah scroll for your new egalitarian synagogue? And here we are in the city of Jerusalem.
1: The pride parade. (laughs) Marching at
2: the great gay pride parade with Orthodox gay people discussing this new egalitarian partnership synagogue and its ability to operate and worship the way it needs to. And it would have been a perfect ending to the perfect story to say that we managed to get a Torah scroll s- through uh, David and Abigail's father, but we didn't. <laughs> I wrote a really beautiful letter saying that we need one and we'd love to get one. We never got an answer. So we didn't get a Torah scroll that way. But I think it's a, it's a way to look at how...
1: Only in Jerusalem.
2: Only in, in Jerusalem, everything can connect and it can all happen by observant people.
1: So stop here for two seconds, Okay. You're a woman, you're a Jerusalemite, you're an Orthodox. We covered some problems, minefields in all of them. You're also working in an institution which is organization which in the eyes of many is the Trojan horse, uh, well poisoners, uh, stabbing the back of the nation called the New Israel Fund, which is, I would say, the infrastructure organization which supports, built and supports the entire liberal civil society in Israel. How does that sit together with your religious identity? Because, I mean, let's ask, at office, when you walk in, are you the only observant individual there? One No, of the only? no,
2: no. There's actually someone in finance who is Okay, uh, we, even have two. we have but, two. But so she okay. doesn't do content. She...
1: So you do content? Yeah. So actually, your professional life and your spiritual life do they collide or do they are they complementary
2: they are the same not the same they are the same <clears throat> it It is uh, such a privilege to have a job that is the um core of yourself. I can't imagine working for something that I don't believe in um and 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 I am so honored and privileged to be in a place where I get to support activists on the ground who are doing the most important things in Israel and paying the highest personal prices. I am honored to do this work. Um, I'm I'm again I'm uncomfortable using these big words, but it's a mission. It's a mission. It's a life mission to to. Um, be able to create connections and and give the backbone to the people who are doing the most important work in every single area of our lives in Israel. And uh, I I can't imagine not doing that. And I tried not to, and I hated it, and had to come back. I tried. I tried to stay away for about a year and a half, and I had to come back.
1: This kind of mission is a mission that goes sideways only to people who need support organizations like horizontally going or can you say that you go vertically as well do you change your home your parents your uh, uh, i mean or does it go only onwards
2: <laughs> i'd like you to answer that no no wait <laughs> i have no clue you know you know them uh, do do but do still. you see that we influence them i think so um i'm i don't do it alone my my brothers are in the same line of work and um and the family environment is such that the discussions around the table um are a one voice um discussion and it that's also a gift from god to have we spoke about this the two of us to have a family that sees eye to eye with you i know other families that can't bring up things
1: really some of your friends and colleagues.
2: Even some of my family from the other side. That you just say, don't talk about it in the family WhatsApp group.
1: Because otherwise... Because
2: we feel uncomfortable when you when I share photographs of myself in a demonstration. They'd rather I won't send So
1: it. it's actually, they ask you, don't introduce the war, as you described it earlier... Into the family. Into the family.
2: Yes. But in our family... Um, Yes, I think we influence our parents, but we, um, we grow from the roots that they showed us. They fought the fights of their time. I think reading, I just stumbled upon, my brother sent us a scan of, a, of an interview that my father gave when he was 23 years old to the National Religious Newspaper. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore, that used to be read in our in our homes, um, and he was such a great warrior at the time, questioning the questions the big questions of that time. Um, again, they were different questions i i don 't feel like we cut to the left of our parents religiously or politically. I feel like we are continuing the path that they put us on. they put us they took us on our first steps into that path. We now may have run forward a little faster or a little further than they would have imagined. But we are on the same path. I don't think we broke away from that path.
1: Let's go back to the concrete, real Jerusalem. Take me to the corner, which is your Jerusalem. When I sit there, says Shira to herself, wow, I feel at home. I feel at my city. Mm. Give me a corner in this city.
2: (laughs) Uh, You mentioned it, actually. I don't know that you love it as much as I do but I really love the swimming pool at the YMCA. <laughs> I think I don't only love it because I enjoy swimming with music in my, in my music player and, um, and you like running and I like swimming, but because it's an abnormal setting where Jews and Arabs uh, come together for recreational Needs. It's and a shared
1: space. One it's of a shared. It's rare. one of the
2: very only normal shared spaces that is not a hospital and um is not around conflict. It's just about living and well-being. And um a Palestinian Israeli can be um your instructor in the in the gym or your lifeguard in the pool, or as most in most cases, your cleaning person in the locker room. Um, But they could shower next to you, and they could teach you, and they could learn from you, and it's just a piece of normality. And the kindergarten there, and, um, and the fact that I walk in in the month of December, and there's a Christmas tree and a menorah, and it just lightens my morning every day when I walk in. It's, it's a little piece of, of Jerusalem heaven. And it's funny that I'm singing its praises because I'm leaving soon because we're building a new um, community pool closer to my house that I'm involved in. But um, I hope it'll have something of the spirit of the YMCA um, and, and residents of, of um, Palestinian neighborhoods in, in South Jerusalem may feel at home and, and, and swim with me there too.
1: The first time ever in my life I met a non-Jew was in YMCA, okay? Really? The C is for Christians, and it's a Christian place. And I, uh, our parents sent us to learn how to swim, not a very Jerusalemite uh, Act. hobby.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> and my instructor, as you said, was a non-Jew. It was fascinating because... One afternoon, I went there for a swimming pool. The next afternoon, I went to my rabbi's home to study at a traditional rabbinical, uh, rabbinical uh, way. And it was very, very, very interesting. But nonetheless, um, I would like to, to wrap it all together, okay? I don't, envy, I don't envy your complicated identity, but I admire it. Mine is very simple, as I you
2: said. I don't think yours is simple. I'm sorry? I don't think yours is simple. My, someday I'll invite you to my podcast. <laughs> Forget about and, it. And you'll see that I, yours I, is not I, so simple I'll either. i come to
1: 20 others before I come to yours, okay? But having <laughs> said that, okay, you know too much. But um, I believe what I see in you is a kind of a very, very powerful soft power. Mm. Okay, I mean, there were books written a couple of times on on the theme of the power of powerlessness. And I believe that the power of persuasion, which comes to what you call your core, which says, listen, I don't have a simple life. I'm this and that. And I'm not ready to give up about neither this nor that. Creates a situation that... You as an individual and your partner and your children and your family and your environment and your siblings and your parents and some of the extended family are people who say, listen, we actually can face both fronts. We can make peace and remain Jewish. We can be majority but sensitive to the minority. We can be observant in a traditional way and yet well connected to modernity in all of its manifestations. And I believe it's very powerful. Do you think that one day Jerusalem will be like that? Would you be a, the mayor of this Jerusalem?
2: No, so many things I don't want to deal with. Um, <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> was Jerusalem ever like that? I don't know. Um, it's like, you know, we sometimes are reminisce and have nostalgia to what Jerusalem was over history. I think it was always a city of of competition between ideas. Um, and. We,
1: President Rivlin once told me yeah. that this is the city of peace that already had 136 wars for this peace.
2: Yeah, and and sometimes they're internal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's streets that are closed to one community and open to another community. Sometimes it's uh, between uh, a Jewish community and a non-Jewish community. Sometimes it's for, Jew- for a Jewish community, people can't use the same street. So I, I can't reminisce back to a time where Jerusalem was... Um, what, what the the Disneyfied version that we make of it in our because it's like uh, um, Jewish tradition has a term of Jerusalem of above and Jerusalem of below Yerushalayim shel Yerushalayim shel Mata, and um, that Jerusalem of above is a dream. Um, It always was a dream. I don't think it ever existed, even in the Second Temple times. There were uh, clans and groups and competition and and different ideas on what Judaism really is. And definitely in times where there were not only Jews in this city. So uh, it's always a dream, but it's not a dream in a way that it's like, oh, you're foolish if you think Jerusalem can be like this. It's a dream in that it, it, it shows the way. The dream of a, of a, of a pluralistic, um, um, inclusive Jerusalem is, is not a foolish dream. It's a, it's a dream that designs your journey. So I can't answer you if the real, modern, real-life Jerusalem can be that dreamy Jerusalem. But it, thinking of it is what makes it worthwhile to stay here.
1: As your grandfather used to say, nostalgia is not what it used, used to be. be. And I take it your grandchild one day will say the future might be. Thank you very much, Ira. Guys, the floor is yours. Q, A's. Anybody wants to answer? Danny, please.
0: Um, I remember you answering, um, you know, with these kind of different identities all of them around your Jewish identity, basically, you know, orthodox, um, but then within that orthodoxy, what exactly and very nuanced and and then at the end, it was very clear that again, you, you're, you care very much for bridging the gap between the cultures and within that community itself, you're very rebellious and you're looking for, you know, you, you see yourself as a very small minority. And I wonder if, In that case, that means that there is something larger that you identify yourself with, not just the Jewish identity. There seems to be something that you can connect it with your Jewish identity, but it connects with others that are non-Jewish. I don't know if it's the liberal one or the democratic one or the human one or whatever. So a question, do you think there is a space or a need at the moment to start creating an identity like that? in order to have a common platform for the different groups that are competing for the city? Or are we better off all kind of trying in the nuanced identities that we have to better them and make them better instead of you know having one common platform for, for those that actually are keen to make it a better place?
2: Yes, I, I, I always think that um, partnerships make us stronger. And um, although my sort of what I carry on my back is very Jewish, and what I bring to the table will always be very Jewish, um, that table has to be enriched by what other people bring to that table. And um, I've been drawing a lot. Um, I don't know how political we can be. But I've been drawing, you said I can say anything tonight. Right. Um, I asked. Um, going to the demonstrations in the past two weeks, there's only been two. On Saturday night near the president's residence here in Jerusalem, has been a very Jerusalem experience for me. Um, it's different from the Tel Aviv demonstration, and it's softer. Um, it's it's nuanced. It's smaller. It's not as loud. You see a lot of signs with uh, verses from the Bible and then signs with verses from Tolstoy. And and that builds power. Partnership builds power. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I believe in it. It's true. And if all pro-democratic residents of Jerusalem got together, I do believe they will be heard and they will resonate. It's really hard because um, in order to do that people say but I don't want the Palestinian flag um, or people would say, um, you know we wa- we walk into the demonstration and and my husband and my son are wear a yarmulke and people tell them, way to go, so great that you came And I want to say why would you why would you even say that? We're here, and we came because we care about Israeli democracy. You don't have to um, clap your hands and and admire a religious uh, Jew for demonstrating against something that that breaks the the foundations of Israeli democracy. So, I mean, um, and then they say, but if we want to bring the soft right, we have to give up messaging about the occupation. And you know, I say to my friends who are organizing this demonstration, this is the strength of the demonstration—the multifaceted, um, complex voices that come to it—are the strength of Jerusalem of the Jerusalem demonstration. And that's why I would never—not only because I don't like pain, and I wouldn't travel to Tel Aviv on a Saturday night if I can walk over uh, a few blocks up to to um, to the next neighborhood. But because the Jerusalem demonstration is unique in that way. And, And nobody is surprised to see me there. And I can stand half of the time with the folks from Free Jerusalem with their Palestinian flags, and half of the time with the friends from my synagogue and all of the time with my family. What a privilege. What a privilege. I love that about Jerusalem. And I would always choose the smaller demonstration that is more complex and represents many voices in Jerusalem. And I will always work with my friends organizing the demonstrations. I have spent this week in trying to find Palestinian speakers to come to speak at the Jerusalem demonstration, because I don't want it to be that soft. So I like salad. I love salad. salad is like We always fight over the leftover salad, right? So Jerusalem is a salad. That's, that's what's great about it. It's not just plain lettuce.
1: I mean, everybody's chopped, yes. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> Who else? Please, come over.
2: Hi, thank you to you both for this amazing conversation this evening. Thinking about Jerusalem as a salad and thinking about your personal history in the city, personally, professionally, as well as a practicing Jew, what is the role then of, of sort of allyship of, of visitors to the city? Um, those who are like like the Notre Dame students who are visiting here. I'm currently studying at Tel Aviv University with with its its own crop though of visitors, people who have never been to Israel, never been to Jerusalem. Are trying to absorb all of this for the first time especially even from afar in tel aviv so what's the role of um visitors of kind of the short term in the jerusalem salad <laughs> um jerusalem is the light of the world and um it it won't be what it is if it didn't have visitors um even the the biblical perception of Jerusalem is as a place where we all come together, right? All nations come together. That's the best, um, you know, the strength of Jerusalem is in its visitors from around the country and from around the world. And you don't have to abide by anything, in my opinion, to be uh, visiting Jerusalemite. Um, I think the best visitors are ones who become ambassadors. I think if you visited Jerusalem, And, um, I mean, I don't want to trash Paris or Prague or London, but you visit these places and I don't think you become an ambassador of London after visiting London. Um, but, but I think if a visitor of Jerusalem carries some sort of a message of complexity and talks to people about what they saw here and who they met here and, um, And that it doesn't always what it seems like from afar or from watching the news or from reading the Bible. People can have a very limited perception of Jerusalem. And because it is so complex and you've experienced it, you can be ambassadors of Jerusalem to the world and say, I have been on the ground. Here is how complicated it is. And here are things that come together in Jerusalem. And you said allyship. Um, So... To to be an ally of Jerusalem, to be an ambassador of Jerusalem is to carry the message of allyship um, outside and to say Jerusalem is is not what you think it is or is not one-dimensional. And in that way, I hope it can represent Israel because Israel has a very troubling reputation around the world that, again, I'll come back to what I said earlier. Things are done in our name that we are not comfortable with. And if you go out and carry a message of complexity, a message of peace, a message of coming together, a message of a long-haul struggle, and say, this is me speaking to you as someone who lived in Jerusalem, that's powerful. Then you're, you're a little piece of Jerusalem that's floating around the world. It's great.
1: Anybody for ambassadorship? So that's about it, my dear. Thank you very, very much.
2: (laughs) Toda, toda.
1: Now, the only mission left for you is to be the ambassador of the Notre Dame tour for the rest of Jerusalem. Thank you very much,
2: Eva. Thank
0: you for listening to another episode of Jerusalem Docs ND. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu.